0: You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. A little bit better than nine. You've had a few extra hours to wake up, and so that's good. But good morning. I'm uh, humbled and honored to be with you. Uh, My name is Lee Lewis. I'm one of the pastors at Harvest Bible Chapel up in Muskoka. And, um, Just a little bit about me, just to kind of give you some context uh, about um, where I come from, what I do, and and kind of even why we're getting into the topic that we're getting into. Uh, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. While you're turning there, I'll give you a, a bit of context about my ministry Uh, I've been pastoring for um, right at 12 years. Uh, When I lived in Texas, we moved up here, uh, we're on our third year. Uh, We moved up here several years ago, um, made the natural transition from Texas to Muskoka. Makes a lot of sense. Everybody from Texas ends up up here at some point. Um, Actually, we're in the 0.01 percentile that would do that. But but anyway, I was pastoring at a church there, had a private practice uh, for 10 years. Uh, did that and um, and really just came across uh, consistent themes in, in pastoral ministry and even counseling ministry. And one of those themes that I've probably run across nearly every session with every client, with every counselee, with every uh, person in the church that I've ever spent any amount of time with is the topic of suffering. Uh, and So understanding as Christ followers what God's intentions are in suffering is, uh, needs to be of one of the utmost importance for us and so this is called the exposing e- essence of suffering. And, but before we get into Deut- Deuteronomy 8, let me give you kind of three categories. That, that, that I think suffering kind of falls into, and so I, I think we tend to approach the topic of suffering uh, as thinking about it as something like something super tragic or super, something super crisis related like a, like a death or somebody coming down with cancer or something totally unexpected that changes the course or trajectory of somebody 's life. That's how we tend to think about suffering, and I want to push us on that a bit today and think a bit broader. I, I, in fact, the case I'm going to make is that everybody in this room right now somehow, some way is being pressed on by what suffering is, um, and here are the categories for suffering, that we're all suffering from living in a fallen world. So you see this early in Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 and 2 happens, God creates everything, he calls it good, it's perfect, there is no sin, and then Genesis 3 happens. Sin enters the world, and then scripture would say creation was subjected to futility, Uh, and as a result, we are born into a fallen world, and that creation groans. Like it's not right, like there's something broken about creation. I've done way too many funerals for infants and seen baby caskets, that's messed up. Someone's not right about that picture. Creation groans, right? And then that, that in that futility, that it presses against the soul, every soul in this room. And as a result of a fallen world, Satan and his demons, um, they, they roam, seeking whom they will devour. That the, the pressures of the demonic are very real. That the pressures pressures of the satanic are pressuring us, probably even on the way to church, there were some arguments that were fueled by satanic influence in your flesh. (laughs) But these things press against the heart, suffering. Second category, that we're all suffering as a consequence from our own sin and rebellion. Romans 6, 23 talks about this, that if we were to go person by person in this room, and you were to share about some foolishness or a season of rebellion in your life, some sinful decisions that you made that even have consequences many years later, we probably all have a story similar to that. And we're suffering as a result of our own rebellion. Third, we're suffering as a result of the sins of others. Romans 5 talks about this, that somebody has sinned against us, say some form of abuse, some, some wickedness that, was, that, that we didn't ask for, we didn't do anything to deserve, but their sins against us brought about a sequence of events, a, 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 a sequence of sufferings that we've had to set under, and maybe even still set under as a result of somebody else's sin. And that all of these things press our heart. And all of these things can do incredible damage to the lives of God's people. And then we have Deuteronomy 8. Um, And let me give you a little bit of context before I get into verse 1. If you you go early into the Exodus, before God actually starts leading his people out, you see there in Exodus 3, God, um, he begins to hear the cries of his people. And the people are in slavery, they're in Egypt, and it's not pleasant slavery by any means, it's harsh slavery. And they're begging the Lord, please free us, please deliver us. God raises up Moses, Moses is an unlikely character that God would raise up, but he raises up Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt, and to prove that he's going to lead God's people out of Egypt, God gives Moses three signs. You remember them? One is throw your staff down, turns into a snake, pick the snake up, turns back into a wooden staff. Anybody in this room ever seen that? I doubt it. I haven't. Um, I've seen stiff uh, snakes that look like, st- uh, staffs that look like snakes, but I've never seen a piece of wood turn into a snake. He gives them that first supernatural sign. Second one, he turns water into blood. Second, third one, he puts his hand in his cloak, pulls it out, it's leprous. Puts it back in, pulls it out, and it's healthy. It's fleshy again, it's healed. So Moses takes these signs to the elders of God's people. God shows them these signs to basically say, hey, I've heard your prayers. I'm going to lead you out. So can you imagine seeing those supernatural signs there in such agony, such suffering, such turmoil, and they see these supernatural signs. I'm thinking if I see that God's heard us, he's doing this deal. This is happening. He is leading us out, and he does. God leads them out of slavery, and there's all kinds of supernatural works. But if you know the wilderness account, you know that God's people grumble over and over and over, nearly every step of the way. And I think if we're not careful, we read about the Israelites coming out of the Exodus, and we're like, what idiots? Who makes a golden calf while God's making the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai? That's crazy. You do. I do. So the the story of the Exodus is our story. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 4, God's going to explain to them why he did what he did to lead them into the wilderness. Pick it up in verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, that you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So that's, that's our first point, that suffering exposes our hearts. So what God's saying is, I, I delivered you. I, I brought you out of, um, out of slavery, out of captivity, I, and then I brought you into the wilderness to humble you, to bring you low, so that you could see your hearts the way that I see your hearts. And, and that, that exposing is exposing a variety of things. And I referenced this already, but, but when, when Moses is on top of the mountain, getting the Ten Commandments of God, the scriptures say that there's this, this ferocious um, thunder, lightning, fire. I don't know what it was, but there was this ferocious thing around the top of the mountains because God is up there with Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments. The people are at the base of the mountain. You remember what they're doing? kind of collecting jewelry and making a golden calf. They're watching God. Are you kidding me? They're making a golden calf while God is giving them the law. And then Moses comes down and, you know, he breaks the Ten Commandments, he breaks the tablets, and they have to do it over again. I mean, just how silly are the people. This is the, this is the picture prone to wander, that our hearts are prone to wander. Like, hey, what would you do? I feel, I feel an angst. I feel uncertain. I fear. I feel fearful. What's the nearest thing I can grab to draw in and make my heart not, not feel fearful? God's saying, I brought you into the wilderness to expose your hearts, and he keeps going, whether you would keep your commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna. Anybody have the recipe on their Pinterest account? If you're a guy and have a Pinterest account, don't, you should not have a Pinterest account. You can live vicariously through your wife's, you should not have your own pinterest account anybody have that recipe for manna anybody you know why nobody knows what it was it was supernatural bread that fell from heaven enough for them each day isn't that crazy like lunch to go it's right there he fed them with quail at one point they always had what they needed keeps going which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. And I, and I use this example in the first service, but I, I can't even walk in the mall with my wife without my feet just getting all achy. Like, for 40 years, their shoes did not wear out. Their clothes never tattered. In other words, God's saying, I brought you in the wilderness to expose your hearts so that you could see your hearts the way that I do, and I took care of you the whole way. So let me give you an example to say what God's not doing. So I've got four kids. You saw them up there. So 10, 8, gosh, 10, 8, 6, 4. That's the the ish range. So the boys are the oldest. And... um, They're starting to play more sports and they're getting more active, which is fun because now that they're at a bit of an older age, we can actually play together where it's not me just teaching them. Um, And and by no means am I super athletic, but compared to them, I'm Michael Jordan, right? I mean, I just do everything better than them. I can throw it further. I can run faster. I I can juke them quicker. Like, I'm at that age where they're young enough and I'm not too old where I can handle them still. If I were to play a pickup basketball game with my boys and just own them, And just to show them how unathletic they are, and those those days are numbered, I can assure you. Uh, The the older they get, the more they're going to reveal I'm not that good of an athlete. But if I were to just play basketball and own them, here's what God's not doing. He's not taking them into the wilderness just to show them how big he is and how small they are. I'm better than you. I'm big. I'm God. You're not. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is... Is he's taking them to the wilderness so that they can see their hearts. And here's what's significant about the hearts. You don't, don't miss this. Genesis 1, God takes dirt and breathes life into the dirt. It's called the soul. So every person in this room is a physical being. Your back hurt a bit more when you got up. And if it's not now, give it 10 years. Your body is wasting away. But you know there's eternality inside of you. It's called the soul. And that soul is what God is saving. That soul is what's going to live on in eternity, either in heaven, redeemed by Christ with him, or in damnation because that heart did not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He took their hearts, which is the epicenter of who they are, where all of their worship comes from, and he exposed it in the wilderness. Why? To draw their worship back to him. That is incredibly loving. He's not punishing them. He's not punking them out. He's not showing them how insignificant they are. He's drawing what matters most in them to him and him alone. It's beautiful. It's unbelievably loving, and it was unbelievably agonizing. 40 years in the wilderness. Can you imagine wandering aimlessly in the desert? That does not sound like a vacation. It sounds like Muskoka in the winter. Nobody comes up to Muskoka in the winter. They come in the summer, though. It's a barren place that he draws them to reveal their hearts. So suffering exposes our hearts, and when our hearts are exposed, it needs refinement. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. What God exposes, he refines. 1 Peter 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 3, says this. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Just real quickly, that living hope it's it's a it's a current knowledge so we could say if you're a Christ follower in this room you could say Jesus saved me he's got a he's got a place for me in heaven with him, with with him and God the Father and the Spirit like i'm redeemed that's a hope that's current but this living hope is talking about something that's current but being that's being grown so if you've been following Christ for any amount of time you can look back several years or maybe several decades and you can compare what you knew then about Christ and what you know now about Christ it's Grown, has it not that's the living hope he implants this eternal hope in you and then he grows it to the point where he's going to take us home one day and in glory it's glorification new bodies will fully understand and know long for that day jesus come today crack the sky open to be awesome but until that day he's growing that hope that's this living hope that he's talking about right here He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you know where that living hope comes from? Not from eating spinach. Not from going to church every Sunday, although that's good. Not from memorizing your Bible. Not from being morally good. You know who it comes through? Jesus Christ. If your heart's not submitted to Jesus Christ, there is no living hope. There's fleeting hopes this side of heaven that burn up one day, but they're actually not hope. They're just distractions. This living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I wish he would just stop there because that sounds sweet. Does that not just sound glorious? The inheritance? So think of whatever inheritance you have or whatever, whatever, anything that could be passed down to you that would be on this side of heaven, on earth, just something that would kind of get you giddy, like a big house, maybe it's a boat, I don't know what that would be, something that would bring you a sense of, ah, we've got some good stuff around us to kind of take care of us and see us through. He's talking about something that no moth, no rust, that cannot be defiled, it can't be stolen. What's secured for you in glory through Christ is untouchable. It's a bank vault that cannot be cracked. It's for you, through Christ. I love the thought of that. Just give me some of that all day. You know how you get there? Let's read, verse six. In this, future hope, living hope, in this living hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials, there's some debate amongst what these trials are, that these people are enduring. Um, Most commentators believe that Peter's keeping it vague on purpose because he's not wanting any one person's trial or suffering to have a leg up on other people's. That suffering is suffering is suffering. Trials are trials are trials. That, that your trial's not worse than mine, my trial's not worse than yours, your suffering's not a bit different than mine or, or, or worse off, or you're gonna get more of Jesus because your suffering is higher on a pecking order. He's keeping it vague to say, here's what God does through trials, through sufferings. In this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a, there's so much going on in this verse. And I don't have time to cover it all. I just want to cover um, uh, what, what, what seems to be a collision. That um, uh, there's Malachi 3 and Romans eight they're kind of colliding. And if you've been in church in any amount of time, you've probably heard both of these. Matthew, um, Romans eight twenty eight. 28, um, God works all things for the good. You know what those all things are? The three forms of suffering we talked about suffering from the result of living in a fallen world, suffering from the effects of your own rebellion, suffering from the effects of sin of others. God's hands aren't tied on any one of them. not that amazing? Like so-and-so dis- So one of the worst things that I counsel over the years is abuse. Kids that were abused growing up, do you know the damage and the wounds that causes for later in life that they get to deal with? And yet I've seen with all the horrific things that have happened to them and that abuse, God steps in and saves them through Christ and delivers them from all of those wounds. Only a God as sovereign of ours could do that. That they're not determined by what happened to them. They're determined by Christ. Your own rebellion. Like if you went back several decades, several, well, really generations now, the Lewises before me, if you went back to certain parts of Oklahoma, if those people are still alive, they're not. And you talked about the Lewis's who weren't redeemed before my grandfather. Wicked, wicked men. (laughs) Wicked men. And yet I'm not determined by that. I'm determined by Christ. People smoke, get lung cancer. People who don't smoke get lung cancer. How's that happen? That creation's been subjected to futility. That creation groans and God is sovereign over all of it. That's one collision here. Here's the other, Malachi 3, and I, I love Malachi. I love the story of the refiner's fire. Go back and look it up um, sometime this week, but the picture of the refiner is um, he's refining silver. The refiner is the, the medalist. He, he takes it, he puts it, he heats it, He puts it in the furnace, and it heats, and it heats, and they continue to add um, air to the furnace so that it continues to get hotter, and the hotter it gets, it burns away those impurities, and the refiner, the metalist, knows that when it's purified, all of the haze, the impurities in the metal that's liquefied at that point, rise to the surface and flash off. They burn. They flame off, and when he sees the shimmer, he knows that it's been refined. Here's, the, here's what's interesting. In my reading about silver, uh, the, the, the refining of silver, um, if you keep heating it beyond the point of refinery, you actually ruin the metal. So if God went off to get some coffee, he didn't drink coffee, I don't think, but if he went off to get a cup of water and it gets too hot, oh, it's ruined. And he, the picture in Malachi 3, it's really a messianic picture. It's a, it's a call to the gospel to come that Christ doesn't step away from the heat, it's on purpose. So you want that future glory? You want that living hope? You want that inheritance? You know how it comes? Through suffering. That the pains of this life aren't, God's not off in the distance, missing it. God's not getting some coffee and, oh gosh, I didn't see what happened to you, Lee. Whew, hopefully I can salvage this. Sorry about the scars. It's not, it's not what's going on. That these trials are on purpose, that God uses them to refine us. Um, the Puritans described this as working together, that this picture where God takes something that's, um, so if, if you, I don't know if you know much about pharmacy, I don't. I've got one friend who went to pharma, pharmacy school, I don't know what they call it, but he, he has taught me a little bit about the chemical elements, the compound elements, especially pharmacists that, don't, that don't just prescribe, that they actually make the medicines in the back and, and it's, called, um, it's called apothecary. So when the the pharmacists bring together different chemicals, um, these chemicals can be poisonous in and of themselves, but when they bring them together, the chemical compound forms something that actually helps your body. So think of salt. Uh, I'm going to show you my uh, chemistry background from high school, which was years and years ago, um, and I got a C, so bear with me. Um, But take the two elements that make salt. Both of those by themselves are poisonous. In fact, some of, like if you, some of us, if we took one of or both of those separately, it maybe could kill you. And yet, when you bring them together, oh, we flavor our food with it, probably over lunch here in a bit. So, here's the picture. This, your suffering by itself, oh yeah, it'll kill you. It'll destroy you. You add Jesus, beautiful. That's First Peter right there. He's refining to make something beautiful to draw out those impurities, to make us look into the image of the son. It is painful, it is hot, and if you're in the middle of it right now, this is probably like hitting you. <laughs> if you've been through that period, you've been through the valley of the shadow of death, you're remembering, you're like, yep, it's hard. I, don't, I would not go through it again, if, even if I got paid, and yet we see here that God's like, no, 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 this is what I'm doing To transform you, to grow you, to build your faith, to purify you, to make me, to make you look like my son. When I was um fourteen, so back in ninety four, going into the summer, I, I was real sick. I'd been sick that whole year. I uh, kind of came to a breaking point where my parents had to take me to the hospital, and in the hospital, they found out some pretty significant things that was going on, rushed me into an emergency surgery, and that's after the surgery, that's when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So that summer, I was pretty much in the hospital the entire summer, um, and that was traumatic for me because in my mind as a 14-year-old about to go into high school, my life was headed one way. I had plans for myself. I had thoughts for myself. I thought I knew where I was headed, and then in a, in a day, all that changed. Um, And I I remember that summer, I'd lay in that hospital bed knowing that a lot of my buddies were across the road at a a college at a baseball camp. I was supposed to be there with them. Couldn't go. And and, I mean, I I, I can't go into all the details, but but just realizing that, oh my gosh, my life has changed forever. (laughs) And and as a 14-year-old trying to wrestle with that as good as a 14-year-old can. And I was a Christ follower at that point. I'd come to faith at eight. But me and God that summer, man, it was... You've heard the hymn, it is well with my soul. It was not well with my soul. That summer, it, 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 would, be, it would become a defining summer for me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I guess how parents are, you know, like I, and the older my kids get, I think the better I can appreciate what my dad did. But at the end of that summer, my parents took us on a kind of a last minute vacation just so we could at least get out of town before school started, and um, where I grew up, way down in New Mexico, we went up to a little town up north in Santa, it's called Santa Fe, beautiful place up in the mountains, and uh, so we were in a mall, shopping mall, my parents, uh, we were all there, and my mom and sister were doing, you know, what women do in malls, just shopping for hours endlessly, it's crazy, and, um, and me and my dad were doing what men do, we were sitting in the food court, and, um, and we were sitting there, and and obviously I was wearing it, you know, and I, I'd not, I don't think I'd articulated to my parents, you know, like, What was going on in my heart and my dad he's a he's a horticulturist he would fit in well in niagara like he just knows everything about plants that that you never cared to know about and um so he would always use the older i got he would use these plant analogies to draw out some spiritual truth we're sitting in this food court and there was it was a three-story mall and there were um four really big uh they went all the way to the skylights um uh, eucalyptus trees and I didn't know that. My dad felt free to inform me of that, uh, I'm assuming, with the Latin name, too. He started to tell me about eucalyptus trees. But before he told me what kind of trees they were, he asked me, you know, what kind of trees? And I said, no, I don't know. He said, well, what do you think would happen to these trees if we went and planted them outside? Which is, sounds like a simple question, but it's knowing my dad, it's a loaded question. Um, he could tell by the way those trees had grown that those trees had grown up in that sheltered environment. Because I asked him this later. They didn't grow up outdoors and then were brought indoors. They've, they were from seed probably grown in that sheltered environment, some greenhouse somewhere, and then brought into this cultured environment with air conditioning. And I said, well, I bet they would grow. And he said, no, they would grow for a bit, but the first minor windstorm that came along, even maybe a, a, a more than gentle breeze, the branches would break under the pressure of that because they've never been tested. And then he said... If you remember those live oak trees down on the coast near New Orleans, how many hurricanes do you think that have hit those trees? We're talking 500-year-old oak trees. How many hurricanes you think have hit those trees? You know why they've stood the test of time? Because their branches have been tested, and then he read these verses to me. <laughs> it's like he kind of dropped the mic and walked off, right? And I, I just sat there, and like, I think that's why I get a bit emotional, because th- That's when I realized it's not a waste. It's not. God's not off somewhere missing it. It's not a waste. He's doing something in it, something intentional, something purposeful. He's taken what is weak. He's taken what needs refining, and he's purifying it. And what he turns it into has more value than gold. That faith, that strength, not in self, not in this world, in Christ, that he's building in us is more precious than anything we could ever find on this world. So brother, sister, that's what he's doing in you. You want heaven? You want to be with God? You want the inheritance that comes through Christ? The pathway is suffering, And any gospel, it's a false gospel, any gospel that would say something contrary to that is what I just said, it's a false gospel. To go the way of the cross is to go the way of suffering and sorrow. And that suffering by no means is God's punishment or wrath. Second thing, suffering reveals where our treasure is. Go to Luke, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 12 I wish I had time to read the whole chapter of 12, but I'm going to reference a couple things and then make some points so you can kind of get the feel for how suffering reveals treasure. Go to verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'm going to give some context and we'll go to verse verse one in a second. But um, here's, think treasure. Don't think treasure like monetary. Don't think treasure like collections, like things that you could get around you that have a monetary uh, value like your paycheck. Or Don't think Indiana Jones getting the golden whatever. Like it's not that kind of treasure. Think of treasure in these categories. Pleasures. What are the pleasures you pursue? Where do you find your greatest joy? Provisions. Man, we spend vast amounts of resources trying to get the right provisions around us so that we can breathe easy. Status. And status may not be a current thing. It may be something you're working towards. It could be a current thing. But, but something that you, if I could just get this, then I would have this title and then I could feel oh, this way about myself. Treasure. Securities. These things that we draw into our lives to fortify our hearts, to fortify our mental capacity so that we can feel rested, so that we can feel strengthened, so that we can feel meaning. These are the treasures that Jesus is referring to. Now let's go to verse one and let's read about these treasures and what threatens them. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat. how they grow they neither toil nor spin yet i tell you even solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if god so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven how much more will he clothe you o you of little faith and jesus goes on but but in essence like what jesus is saying is that an alternative treasure seeks creation above the creator so we'll find an earthly treasure to draw in to fill um provided for to feel protected to feel secure like we draw these treasures in and then if anything threatens them anxiety abounds that anxieties are birthed out of misplaced treasure so i see this all the time in marriage counseling i'll just give you a simple scenario husband needs his wife to feel secure about himself it goes way back he's never even articulated he's unaware of it Wife needs her husband to feel secure and to have refuge, to feel like she's got meaning and purpose. Well, as long as they're cooperating with each other, you never realize it until he says something or she says something that threatens the very, the very security that they've gained in their hearts towards one another. What that's exposing is a created treasure. I've treasured this horizontal thing, this earthly thing more than Christ. That's what's exposed in that moment. So here's here's what I what I love about counseling anxiety. Everybody in this room first of all, you have anxiety. Even if you don't have an anxiety disorder, you have anxieties in your heart. What anxieties reveal are potential treasures that are treasures elevated above Christ always, always. And so this is something that I'm learning more and more as a young father. I can't tell you how many times I've had to go to the Lord when something's going on with one or several of my kids that I can't control, that's out of my power, and have to like, Lord, I'm I'm worried about this. I don't know what to do about this, but they're yours. If I don't do that, I will scheme and obsess on how to fix and manage this to a detriment. And you know what He says? Anxiety doesn't even add a single hour to your day. It actually takes your life. I was uh, watching a documentary the other day on some new ways they're trying to deal with cancer, and so they were talking about different foods like gluten and bleached sugar, all these things that we put into our bodies and how those can, those can contribute to different diseases. All true. I'm not here to debunk any of that, but the doctor, who's a secularist, the num- he said the number one cause of these types of hormones that cause these types of cells that cause these types of cancers eventually, you know what he said? Anxiety. You know where anxiety comes from, according to Christ? Misplaced treasure. If you treasure Christ, it doesn't mean that you see threats and be like, oh, that's not a threat. Hey, let's go hold hands with my enemy. No, you see it for what it is, but you filter it through Christ. I see trials. I see threats much differently when Jesus Christ is my lens. And if he's my treasure, he's my lens. The lens over my eyes, the lens over my heart, But when I begin to treasure that created thing above the creator, my heart is now tied and at the mercy of that thing, what happens if something takes it? You ever gone to work one day and they're having a reorg and everything you've worked for all of a sudden gone like that because we've given you a new position. Oh, by the way, we cut your pay. If that's your treasure, what are you going to do? It's a functional savior that in that revealing of suffering, God's using to expose, no, no, it's me. Not the job. It's me. It's not your wife. It's not your kids. It's not your husband. It's me. It's not this thing that you're pursuing. It's me. It's what Jesus is saying. If our treasure is Christ, our cares are with him. And it's not that cares aren't real. Hear me saying that. Like, If you're good with Christ, that doesn't mean you have this goofy grin on your face that just kind of goes through everything like nothing's going on when everything's going on. It's not what it means. In Christ, your cares early and often are rolled to Him. Lord, this is a concern. What do I do? What that means is I consult with the Lord regularly. I've got a friend who just wrote a book. You should check it out. It's called Pray About Everything. the the argument he makes in that book is if we're early and often to prayer, we're early and often to lay things at the feet of Christ, I would contend there is no better place to be. But what do we do? Here's how I go through life. I'll call you if I need you, God. I'll let you know. Then I go. Go about my day. And then guess what? Life happens. God, where are you? I'm the one who went about it my own way. I'm the one who just was hell-bent to go forward and not even consult the Lord until I got stuck in the mud. That's what suffering does. It reveals our treasures. It exposes our hearts and reveals our propensities to move ahead or pursue outside of God and his strength and his leading. And that's where these treasures kind of boil down into two categories. The first one, it's called idolatry. Anybody heard the term idolatry? Nobody? Come on, give me a hand or something. Yeah, it's all over scripture. Idolatry, in essence, is creation above the creator. Write down Romans 1, 22 through 25. Go read it today. It talks about the pursuit of God's stuff above him. And that the propensity of my heart is to go after his stuff above him. So St. Augustine calls idolatry, he calls it a disordered love. So think of it this way. So I am, I gotta get the order right, I am a son of God because of Christ, I'm a husband, I am a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a son to my parents, I'm a brother, I'm a friend. So you see the the categories? And in the order, do you see the intentional order? That order that I just listed to you is from scripture. That first and foremost, we're a child of God. That's my greatest identity according to God's word. And because I'm married and God's got a call on my life as a husband, I'm called to love my wife. And and not just love her, love her more than any other relationship on earth. Like if I got a bro that I'm like real tight with growing up, hey bud, love you, our relationship changes because God wants me to love my wife more than you. Then my kids, then my job. So let me tell you what my heart does. If in my disordered heart, I begin to use my pastoral position to gain some type of esteem and worth for myself. Here's what I do. I go from number four to number one. You know who falls down? God, my wife, my kids. So here's what Augustine would say. He would use some serious language to articulate what our hearts do in that moment. He calls it human sacrifice. That I would put my wife and kids on the altar for my esteem in this position that it gives me. Do you see that? Do you see that? That's what's going on. This thing, idolatry, is serious. It's not to be tinkered with. It's not a small thing. It's our hearts saying, God, could you take a back seat? Because I think this position... I think this status would actually give me more peace than you. So you just kind of, if you could just cooperate a bit. and fall. I'm going to go to church on Sundays. I'm going I'm to keep reading my Bible here and there, but I just need you to fall down a bit so that this can creep up here because my heart really needs this. Nobody says that, but that's what our hearts are saying, brothers and sisters. Idolatry is an offense before a holy God, and he is a jealous God. Not jealous because he needs anything from us, But jealous, remember Genesis 1, when he breathed into the soul, those affections, that worship that he breathed in us to terminate on him, he longs for that to terminate on him. So that's like I do as a father when I come home from a long day at work and want my kids to run to me. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) I'll walk in the door and one of my favorite things is when all the kids run and just give me a hug or tackle me. You know, I get a little bit jealous when none of them run. Because they're off plan, And the older they get, the more likely they are to stay focused on whatever they're doing. Hey, Dad. Good to see you, son. Oh, I long when they come and run up in my arms. That's, that's God. He birthed those affections in you, and he longs for them. That's what James talks about. So here's some symptoms of idolatry, some questions to ask yourself. One, what thing, object, relationship, status, pursuit, In your life, if it were gone, would nearly take away your desire to live? That's probably not a question you ask yourself too often, is it? And I I think you should be bold enough to ask it. What thing in my life? um, I mentioned doing too many infants' funerals in 12 years. Uh, I hope I never have to do another one. Um, But having done as many as I've done up to this point, I guess statistically chances are I'm going to again. And and none of those parents of those infants who lost those babies like saw it coming. Like it was a phone call for one from a daycare. Like we went to check your kid and your baby was dead. It, sudden infant death syndrome. You ever heard of it? Can you imagine getting that call? You're at work. It's a, talk about turning your life upside down. What's it going to reveal? What's it going to expose? Am I willing to sin to get it? Am I willing to sin to keep it? Do I run to it as a refuge, comfort, provision, or other such reason? And listen, peace and comfort, do you know why you long for peace and comfort? Does anybody like sitting in a place of anxiety and angst? Not many people do. In fact, most people don't. When you feel an angst, you try to get rid of the angst. And so a lot of this happens just through technology, like kind of bored. And so we go and occupy ourselves with technology. We don't like the feeling of angst. So we occupy ourselves somewhere. And what happens is unbeknownst to us, we're seeking refuge and comfort and peace from some created thing. Your desire for peace, your desire for comfort, your desire for refuge was put in you by God. It's just gone sideways with sin. Find peace from him. Find comfort from him. I best love my kids. I best love my wife when Christ is my all in all. And in any source of comfort I gain from those relationships, it's not in the sense of them alone because my comfort's here and I can enjoy this now. But if you disorder that, now they, they better dance to my tune and give me what I need or I'll hold it against them. This is what idolatry does. Where is there discontentment or chaos in my life? And, and I don't pretend that you're, you're able to see this. You may need to ask a trusted brother or sister, hey, do you see chaos in my life? Like if, if everything you touch burns at some point, I, lo- I love you, it's not okay. If every relationship you touch is on fire, I'm sure that they've contributed, so have you. There's some idolatry there. What do my time and money center around Jesus teaches about money more than anything else in the gospels you want to know where your heart is get online and see your banking account and what your money centers around it's pretty indicting second one is pride pride is self above God I think we get two extreme views of pride in scripture I think Nebuchadnezzar um, Daniel 4 you ever heard of old Nebuchadnezzar Nebi I call him Nebi you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world at his time. He was, he was the show. He was the deal. And Daniel 4 talks about Nebuchadnezzar kind of coming out on his balcony and looking over everything that God had given him, and he's kind of like, wow, look how awesome I am. Look what I've done. He claims it for himself, and God strikes him down. He goes, he goes crazy. He's eating grass like a beast in a field, He he would be the modern-day narcissist. Those are the words we kind of use to describe that guy. But let's let's think about another extreme. Harder to spot. It actually doesn't even look like pride. Let's think of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Self-pity. Self-loathing. Woe is me. Self above God. Jonah is so self-focused in his plight that he fails to acknowledge and see how God redeemed an entire city, a wicked city. It's pride. Go back to Deuteronomy. I should have told you to keep your finger there, but I want you to see Deuteronomy chapter eight. I'm going to show you what our tendency is. And again, this is God's grace. He's summarizing why He took him into the wilderness. It's a sweet act of revealing the hearts to refine them, and then pick it up in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Skip down to verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I think we would say, like, well, I would never say that. I don't know that we would ever say it with our mouths. I think our hearts scream it. So we homeschool about a year ago. Um, you know, our kids do well, and I'm super proud. My wife just crushes it because we did not homeschool back in Texas, and um, she's, she's done such a great job. But um, my oldest, Luke, he's, uh, he does a really good job. He's, he's got a work ethic about him. And so if it doesn't come natural to him, that work ethic will kick in, and he usually can get something down. So with most of the, the different disciplines that we're teaching them in homeschool right now, he does pretty good. He doesn't have to work too hard at it. He just has to put his mind to it. But there's a couple key ones that he just, he's grown to really dislike because they're not easy for him. He has to work extra hard for them. And so uh, if mama calls and calls the principal, that's me, which rarely happens, but if it happens, I can nearly guess what it's around it's, I can nearly always guess it's around this subject or this subject, and one of those days happened about a year ago, and it was in the morning, it was around 10 a.m., and I couldn't get home for lunch to talk to him, and so I just kind of got him on the phone, I said, hey Luke, uh, when I get home tonight, we're going to talk about this, and I want you to think, like, I want you to think about how you've dealt with your mom here, and and I want you to kind of consider, like, what is it, what is it you're really fighting for, because we're going to talk this through, and that was the grace of the Lord that I had the day, because a lot of times when I get that call, I'm just like, Oh, man, I'm going to good him. I'm going to good him, right? I mean, I'm just thinking I'm going to put him straight. And I had the day to pray about it. I had the day to think about it and get home that night. And um, the kids were already headed towards bed. So we got the kids situated. And then me and Luke and his mom sat down and began a dialogue with Luke. What, what did you think about today? What, and we were talking through what it was. And so as I'm talking with him, he says, you know, I, I'm sorry, Dad. I just, it's just this subject's were hard for me. I don't like it. So why do you? Why do you like the other subjects? And this is the grace of the Lord. The Lord just giving me insight into a situation I had no business knowing about. Why do you, why do you, why do, why do you work so hard at those? Why do you not give your mom trouble on those? Like, well, they come easy to me. They come easy to me so I can kind of, and he said this, I can just kind of push right through them and, and I, I can get through and, and, it, and it's easy. It's not hard. But when I come to this one, it's really hard. And then the, it just hit me. And it hit me from the Holy Spirit because this is what I do. Like it hit me in a convicting way. He said, when I get to this one, it's hard, so I get frustrated, and then I push back, and I push back, and and, and that was the crux. That's where he and his mom locked horns. And so I was trying to teach him how to pray. Well, have you asked the Lord, Lord, this one comes hard for me. I need your help. But then I realized in that moment, just because he's good at it doesn't mean he needs the Lord any less, right? What is it about us that only consults and calls on the Lord when we hit a tough spot. What is it, I'm strong for like 23 hours and that 24th hour, I'm all of a sudden weak? You know what scripture says about our condition? Unbelievably weak, unbelievably frail, unbelievably limited, not sovereign, and yet I would call on the Lord only when I realized that. So we had this sweet moment with my son where we're like, I, we need him always. It's a blanket statement. I am weak when I feel strong. I am weak when I feel weak. Lord, we need you. It's not about hitting a broken spot when you're like all of a sudden crying out to the Lord. It's, Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you today. I need you in my low spot. I need you in the suffering. I need you on this mountaintop where I feel like, man, I feel like I'm on top of the world right now. I need you equally across the board. The problem is, brother and sister, we do not live that way. We pick and choose when we will let God be around our lives. It's called self-reliance. That is pride. That is an offense to a holy God. And because God longs for those passions in your soul, he will sanctify it out. You know what he uses to draw it out? Suffering. He will use trial to bring you to a place where you have to consult outside. It's his grace to do so. If everything came easy to me in life, would I ever call on the Lord? I don't think that I would. I might here and there. But if I was strong and fortified and healthy all the time, one of the gifts of Crohn's disease, it's weird saying this. One of the gifts of Crohn's disease over the years, I've had such seasons of such sickness, nearly taken my life several times, I wouldn't trade it. Because I have had to beg the Lord. I have had to plead with the Lord on different periods of my life and he has shown up in profound ways. If I were healthy, if I had everything I needed, I don't think that I would. I'm way too self-centered. I'm way too self-enamored. Our biggest problem, our biggest enemy, hear me saying this, Our biggest problem is us. We love us too much. We preserve us too much. This is no exaggeration what I'm about to say. In 12 years of counseling, I've only counseled two people who I would say genuinely hate themselves. And yet it's a term I hear all the time. I just hate myself. No, you don't. You care for yourself really well. You got extra money to buy clothes. You buy clothes that don't look good on you. You got extra money to buy some food? You gonna buy food you don't like? You take care of you. You love you some you. I love me some me. It's one of our biggest problems. And God in suffering exposes self-preservation, self-reliance, self-strength, and he crumbles it. And his grace is there. His mercy is there. In suffering, he exposes our hearts. Our hearts exposed reveal where our treasure is. If our treasure is not Christ, then our lives are entangled with sin and filled with toil. All right, last section of scripture. Go to Job, Job 38. And I'm going to use the story of Job to kind of land this plane because I think we need to respond. And I think Job's going to teach us how to respond. So give it, give you a bit of context before we get into 38. So Job, his character right out of the gate, verse 1, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So that phrase right there, one who feared God and turned away from evil, blameless. God doesn't say that about hardly anyone in Scripture. He does call David a man after his own heart, which is a pretty significant praise onto David. But what he says about Job here is phenomenal. And here's what I love about the book of Job. The book of Job is a, it's, it's Christ followers. We believe this to be the inerrant word of God. This is from God. But Job is one of the most studied figures in history. Did you know that? Go to a a philosophy room in any college, in any university that's talking about the philosophy of evil and suffering. It could be any university here in Canada. It could be any university back in the States. Job will get discussed at one point. Among atheists, agnostics, it doesn't matter. Go to any other religion, Hindu, Buddhist, they have studied Job and the life of Job. And yet we as Christians have this historical figure, Job, who's about to teach us how to respond to suffering. And here's what God says about him. I'm assured in saying this, that there is not a person in this room, including me, that rivals what God just said about Job. Let me say it again. Feared the Lord, turned away from evil, blameless, upright. You may get like two of the four. No one's four for four on that in this room, I can assure you. This is a man who is right before the Lord. And then here's what happens. There's a dialogue between Satan and God. And God kind of, it's nearly as if he tempts Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Can you imagine being Job, flying the wall here in that one? Shh, don't say anything. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, yeah, he's, He's got a hedge around him. He has everything, I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) he has everything you would need. He has money, he has wealth, he has good kids, he has everything you would need. Of course he'll follow you. He would never turn his back on you, but let me take that, let me take it, and he will curse you, and God gives him permission. And here's what I love about, we we learn something about God's sovereignty versus Satan's limited power. God gives him a very clear picture of what he can do and what he can't do. And Satan has to listen to it. He's a dog on a leash. Satan can't go outside of what God tells him he can do. And and Satan sifts Job. Job loses more in a matter of minutes than most people lose in their entire life. And here is Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? (laughs) He lost his kids. He lost all of his property. The only thing he's left with is a wife who's embittered. I Take her, Lord. She's not in a good place. (laughs) And he worships. I mean... I probably would have said what his wife said too, curse God and die. His wrath is on you, Job. (laughs) Aren't so upright, are you, Job? (laughs) Nope. His true heart's revealed. But I want you to see something. In chapters 3 through 37, we see with Job, he begins to question God. He begins to judge God. He begins to critique God. And and at some point this week, go back and read chapters 3 through 37. There are sections in those chapters where as you're reading, I'm kind of like standing back for Job. Because I'm like, oh, he's going too hard now. Going too hard at God. God's about to drop a lightning bolt. God never does. He shoulders every bit of it. Every bit of it. So brother or sister, if you're in that place right now where you're just one more weight on your shoulders and you're done. Did you know that God hears your questions? Like he perfectly hears them. Perfectly shoulders them. And and what our culture is going to do with suffering is why. Why, 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 why? Why, 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 why? Job is bringing the why for lots of chapters. And then God speaks. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. This whirlwind? So whirlwind is not the right word for this. Think tornado. So where i'm from in west texas there's tornadoes like you guys have basements to actually live in if you got a basement where i'm from it's only for tornadoes you don't live in them job shows up god shows up in a tornado like it's not this little dust devil oh that's a that's like a little spinny thing he shows up on the scene and he says verse 2 who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. There's no, more, there's no more forthright way to say than what God says that. Hmm? What you got, Job? Come on, man. Put it on. Dress up. Get your, let's do this, Job. He shows up, speaks. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know who stretched the line upon it? it, And it goes on. Like God puts all these hypothetical questions out. Hey, Job, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? There's not a single answer that Job can give. And God goes on. He speaks to the accusation that Job brings against him. And then you see when God shows up and speaks, Job is leveled. He is flattened in a good way. And then we see Job's pride revealed in Job 40. Skip to Job 40. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord, said, Behold, I am of small amount. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer Twice, but I will proceed no further. So here's, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but in essence, what's going on here? God shows up in chapter 38 and he speaks, and Job is leveled. He's flattened and he's like, oh, I got myself into deep water here. I'm in trouble. And then um, Job begins to realize his fault. He begins to realize his pride. I have questioned God. I have spoken things. This is articulation. I have spoken things I had no business speaking of. You ever kind of been in that? You kind of come in on the back end of a conversation and you think you understand the whole context of the conversation and you speak based off the limited amount you heard and you're totally off base? That's Job here. Job's like, ooh, I'm embarrassed now. I had no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm a fool. Like he is in the right place. And then um, in, Job 40, in Job 42, go to verse 1 in Job 42. Then the Lord answered. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this? See the, see the phrase, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job is confessing specifically something God rebuked him on several chapters earlier. Isn't that amazing? That's repentance. He acknowledges specifically. This is Job in a broken place confessing specifically what God has shown him and he's bringing it before the Lord. Job is giving us, brothers and sisters, Job is giving us, he's modeling for us. When God reveals our treasure, when he reveals our hearts and suffering, Job is modeling what it means to confess specifically and to come under his graces. And here's, here's what the come under his graces is. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, what I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, And you make it known to me. And I I love this part. I had heard of you by hearing by the hearing of your ear, but now my eyes see you. Here's what Job's saying. Like this is beautiful. He's confessed specifically what God has shown him. He is as humble and as low as you can go. Listen, he's already a humble man, but there's some pride in him that gets exposed. God confronts him on that pride doesn't answer a single one of his questions from 3 to 37. Can I tell you that summer in 94, I begged the Lord, why? What are you doing? Why are you turning my life upside down? I've never got an answer to any of those questions. But can I tell you, God has heard every one of them? And his answers have been far better than my questions were. Because what Job says here, he's like, I thought I knew you. But now I've seen you, and you you know what Job's talking about. If you've ever been through a season of suffering and come out out on the other end and gotten more of the Lord, you know this, because you've come out knowing more of the Lord. You've come out different, maybe even with a limp for the rest of your days. You've come out different, like, I I thought I knew you. Now I've seen you. Like, through suffering, he reveals our hearts. He exposes our treasures. He brings us to a place of conviction to sanctify us. And we get more of Jesus in the end. Are you kidding me? It's not punishment. It's not his wrath. It's not God being God and flexing his muscle. It's God being the father and redeeming his children. You want to make meaning of your suffering? Tether it to Christ. Because God's purposes in suffering are for your good. And his glory. So I want everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm gonna give you some things to kind of think through and pray through before we close in song. So think recognizing that we're all pressed by suffering, whether we realize it or not, right now we're all pressed by the effects of suffering. Jesus Christ, through, the, through his perfect life lived, his death, His resurrection has conquered the realities of suffering. But that's not to say we don't get trapped in that place where, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the difficulty, what's God revealing in your heart? Some of you may have to think back. You may have to think back to past hurts, past sufferings, past trials. You ever ask the Lord what he was trying to reveal in your heart? What treasure? What did you treasure? What do you treasure more than Christ? Where do you find your greatest hope and security if it's not Christ? Because you're going to seek it somewhere. God uses suffering to refine those impurities. To draw all of our affections to Christ. Right now, just in your own heart, ask the Lord to teach you how to embrace suffering. Ask him right now. And it's for some of you, you're in the middle of it. Like if one more weight falls on your shoulder, you don't know what you're gonna do. This is a big prayer. Ask him to give you the strength to embrace it. Don't avoid it. Don't run from it. God does his best work in the furnace. He does his best work in the wilderness. He brings us to a realization that we have need. If he never did, we never would turn to him. Embrace it. And now praise him. Praise God that he exposes our hearts. If he never did, we would never see it. The fact that he does means he loves us. Because those things he exposes, they separate us from him. He didn't want to be separated from us. If he did, he would never expose them. And we would never even realize it. So praise him. And if he's given you something specific, a specific treasure, a specific idol, pride, confess it specifically, like Job. Low, from a low place. You're God, and I am not. Confess it specifically. So, Lord, um, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are all-knowing. We thank you that you are all-powerful. And that nothing that goes on in our lives, nothing that's happened to us, nothing that's happening now, nothing that will happen catches you off guard. That for those who are in Christ, you use all those things for your purposes in our lives. To bring yourself glory and for our good. To draw us into greater need and dependence of Christ. There is no greater love to be had. There is no greater comfort to be had. There is no greater peace. There is no greater refuge than in that place. So, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, where we make created things a source of comfort or the great comfort, the great peace. Forgive us where we make created things a greater treasure than you, Christ. Thank you for your patience and your love for us. We thank you that anything you do to lead us into suffering is for our good, and that you're incredibly loving and tender, so I pray right now that you would allow us to respond, uh, allow us to respond honestly in our heart, because the tendency is, is to just kind of move forward, especially if we're not in a season of season of quote-unquote suffering, like we just kind of move forward, yeah, I got it, but Lord, no, we don't want to do that right now, we want to pause, and really put our hearts before you, and Jesus, we look to you, Christ, Christ, you live the perfect life, you died our death, and you you conquered the grave, and if we were left to our circumstances, they would end us. But as that poison is extracted and brought together with your good gospel, you use it to do a beautiful work. So we look to you, Jesus, the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the hope we have, and I pray for everyone in this room, those who are in the sitting in their ashes right now, that you would pour your peace on them, Lord. You pour your mercy on them, Lord. you would strengthen them in the midst of this trial, this suffering. And that the church would come together and love one another and bear burdens with one another. Carry one another in these seasons as we look to you together, Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.